Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. has become quite the show for PBS. It's a show involving a lot of famous people who submit themselves to interviews and DNA tests. And they have a small army of genealogical researchers that will then search all available databases and DNA information to learn about the ancestors of the famous people. And then the show will present the people themselves and us what has been learned about their ancestors and genealogy. Now, the popularity of the show reflects and embodies the great interest of Americans in particular regarding genealogy. What is it that leads so many Americans to want to know more about their ancestry and genealogy? Do we see this kind of impulse reflected in Scripture, and what might this impulse mean for us in our faith in Christ? Well, there are two tendencies that we can kind of see if you've ever watched uh, Finding Your Roots and the guests on Finding Your Roots. One of them is that the famous people rarely know much about their ancestry. And they proved astounded and moved, really, when they are acquainted with their ancestors and the predicaments in which their ancestors found themselves. And whenever they're asked about whether they had known anything about their ancestors, they generally answer no. And many such times, these things were not discussed or talked about. And these tendencies help explain the drive to learn about our genealogy and our ancestors. One consistent feature of humanity is the fact that we all experience something called motivated learning and appreciation. That when you're forced to learn about something, you rarely learn about it very well. But when you have some motivation to learn or appreciate something, you're going to be more likely to remember it and more interested in learning about it. And now we've all been constantly exposed to various historical facts about the history of America and the world. But those facts hit a little bit different when you have an ancestor who experienced something of that sort. And that's what you see, especially on Finding Your Roots, that the guests tend to be hit pretty hard when they are black, for instance, and they meet ancestors who were enslaved, and often uh, the enslavers as well. Those who are of Jewish descent, and they meet ancestors who did not make it in the programs or the Holocaust. And white people sometimes, when they meet ancestors who were uh, those who enslaved others. And so in these circumstances, uh, that which was known to exist but seemed somewhat abstract has become much more close and much more personal. It's one thing to know, okay, slavery happened, wars happened, the Holocaust happened. It's quite another to know that your great-great-great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-uncle or something of the sort experienced those things and had to endure them, and it makes it a lot more personal. And another major part uh, of what's going on here is uh, the disorientation that we're all feeling, but that we kind of deny that we feel in a way, because, of course, the American ethos, right, the American story, is that we should be whatever we want to be, right, and that we're the authors of our own stories. You know, we can be what we want to be. That's kind of the story that they inculcate in you uh, from elementary school days and on. And a lot of people have taken this idea very seriously, and they've worked very diligently to write or rewrite their story. And that's probably what's going on with a lot of these ancestors that these people have who didn't talk much about the past. That There were a lot of reasons why they didn't want to talk about the past. That was something they were trying to get away from. They were trying to escape. Um, and that's why they may not want to think or talk much about it. And for a lot of people, family is pain because of abuse, neglect, shame, or other things that they may have experienced. But for many of their descendants... There's this kind of nagging feeling of loss, that we don't really know who we are, right? And we want to understand ourselves in terms of our ancestors. And that's really what's motivating a lot of these people to come on to Finding Your Roots, to submit to all these things, right? To, to 
invasive process, you know, going through your family history and your DNA and all that, so you can learn more about your ancestors. And it's, of course, it's not just something that the celebrities uh, are interested in, right? It's something that a lot of people are interested in. The um, growing size of Ancestry.com, 23andMe and things, uh, talking about, you know, learning about your uh, genetic ancestry, learning about who your ancestors are has become quite the thing. Uh, in our modern age, uh, part of our uh, modern technology, but also trying to make sense of who we are thanks to our modern technology. And we see this based upon all of this disruption. When we talk about disruption, right? That's because, as we noted, uh, interest in genealogy is very much an American phenomenon. Okay, it's not suggesting that no one else cares about ancestry and that all Americans care about ancestry. We're just talking about generalities, right? Because there are people in every culture who have some interest in it, right? And plenty of Americans could probably care less. But there's a reason why it's much more prevalent in America than in some of the old countries, so to speak. And it's because of this idea of disruption. Because there are very few of us who are truly from here. Because at some point within the past 500 years, most of our ancestors came here from somewhere else. However, voluntarily or involuntarily, they left and came here. And by that very nature of that transition, it's disruptive. Even if you came over voluntarily, even if you wanted to come over here, you weren't being forced to come over here, you were still doing so under some kind of political, economic, or religious distress. Uh, you could not make a living, or it was just not worth it to try to keep making a living in the home country. Uh, you were being actively persecuted for some reason, and that is why you would flee. Remember, there's, people tend to want to stick to where they are. They want to uh, stay with family and to maintain the customs and traditions that they have for generations. So therefore, anytime there is a disruption of that, it is notable. And that would also explain why so many in the old country had their reasons to stay. And because of that, they stayed firmly anchored in the story of their society and culture. Because when you're anchored in your society and culture with roots and a heritage, specific research into genealogy and ancestry is going to prove less important. You got to remember, for most of human history, most people lived and died within a few miles of where, uh, in the same area. They were full participants in the story of their neighborhood and or their culture. And so for good reason, the scriptures speak of people in terms of their ethnicities. So in Genesis 10, you start seeing the eponymous ancestors of people, right? In Acts 17, 26, Paul says that from one man, God has made every nation of the earth. Because in nationalities or ethnicities, we develop our own culture, our own practice, our own way of doing things, right? Now, what does it mean to be English or Scottish or Irish or Swedish or German or Italian or Chinese, right? We can ask that, and we can answer in terms of, well, there's certain kind of food dishes, right? There's certain kind of cultural expressions, certain kinds of attitudes, certain kinds of celebrations, right? We could even say that about various tribal groups in other areas that may not have federated into nations in the same way as they had in these other places. We could even talk about it in terms of uh, subcultures or subnations, right? Something like Sardinia or Sicily or various portions of some of the countries that we've already mentioned. Because a significant part of our disruption and alienation in America is because we are an anti-culture in many ways, an anti-nation. That we we're, we were told, right, to celebrate that we are a melting pot of America, where we have all these different contributions from all these different cultures that come together. And hey, we all enjoy the cosmopolitan benefits of enjoying those different foods and festivities and to be able to share in all of that. But what does it mean, therefore, to be an American? 
it's a whole lot more challenging to develop and maintain an identity in which a place where the goal for generations was really to get away from being something else, right? Uh, yet to celebrate the heritage of something else. Now, disruption is not just an American phenomenon. This happens throughout history. Uh, book two of the Iliad, for instance, uh, catalog, is a catalog of ships. It's a detailed description of the origins of all these people who participated on the Achaean side of the Trojan War, where every town that sent ships is listed. It would have been a, a burdensome thing to learn, remember, and to recite. But it's there because it's in bardic memory preserving this, this great heritage, right? Uh, in the beginning, it would have been something to celebrate what you or your aunt dad or your granddad did. But over uh, time, as, as the culture completely collapsed and a different phase uh, of culture was entered into, it became a way to connect with the ancient uh, things of old, where you would hear the name of your town and realize that it was your town's ancestors that participated in this event, this great uh, action, this great conquest, right? And it allowed you to feel that connection, that association with it, even though otherwise you wouldn't have felt that much association and connection, right? Because those are the people who built the mighty ruins that are up on top of the hill that we could never do, right? And so there's that kind of disruption. And probably the epics of almost any nation are in some way honored and upheld because of that disruption, because some significant events have taken place between then and now that have led to a completely different environment. And so you're kind of yearning for that connection to the past. And very importantly, that disruption is also found in the witness of Scripture. When we talk about genealogy and ancestry, our minds immediately go to the fact that there are genealogical lists in the Scriptures. We are aware of that. They're very laborious reading when we come upon them, right? Why are they there? What's going on there? And so it's good for us to consider where they are, and maybe therefore why we've got this genealogical interest and list in scriptures. And of course, it begins in Genesis, and it's very well known for its genealogy. So in Genesis chapter 5, you start going from Adam and Seth down to Noah. And then in chapter 10, you have Noah's three sons. And in chapter 10, and then again 11, you get down to the way the nations are at the time of the author, and also, of course, getting to Terah and Abraham, who will be Abraham. So why are these genealogies there? Well, the book of Genesis is overall an etiology for Israel. And what we mean by etiology is a big term for explanation, right? Uh, you think about as a kid, why are we here? Why are those people there? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Well, Genesis is starting to answer those questions, right? Why is Israel a confederation of 12 tribes where it's at? Why are there Edomites and Moabites and Ammonites on the eastern periphery of Israel? And why are they there? And why do we allow them to still be there, right? Uh, but the genealogies themselves are actually marking a kind of disruption in their own way. Because what's very interesting when you notice is that the known world, as portrayed in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is not centered in this Levant land between Egypt and Mesopotamia. It's centered in Mesopotamia. Uh, that's where Eden would have been. Uh, the mountains of Ararat are to their north, up near in, up in Turkey today. Uh, the plain of Shinar. Uh, of course, the Tower of Babylon is very famously Babel, or the city of Babylon. And the earliest characters are also Mesopotamian. So there is disruption. The, the people are not the same in the same place. There's a lot that's gone on that's disrupted between these events and the people. And so these genealogies identify the origins of these nations and brings Israel to the ancestors who left Ur of the Chaldees and then Haran to come to Canaan by the call of God, Abraham and, and others, right? 
Now, genealogy and ancestry are going to remain important because Israel's origins are ultimately Aramean and Canaanite with a significant Egyptian sojourn, right? And so that's why, why are we in Canaan? Why aren't we somewhere else, right? Israel has its place because God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he made and fulfilled promises to them, which we can see in like Genesis 15. We can also see this evoked in Exodus chapter 6 when these things are fulfilled. And so it's a way of explaining, hey, this is how it all got going, but also why we're not there, why we are somewhere else, and why we are who we are, and why others are who they are. Now, you might find partial short genealogies in a lot of the other books of the Old Testament. Genealogical lists really don't feature as prominently in the rest of the Old Testament as we might imagine. We kind of get this idea they're everywhere. Uh, But they are, again, very pronounced in a set of literature that comes toward the end of the biblical period, in the days of the chronicler. In fact, the chronicler will begin his narrative with a lot of genealogy. He will begin with Adam. And he will, in fact, extend even into the days after the exile in his chronological, his genealogical working there in First Chronicles 1 through 9. And the same interest about identification of returning exiles and genealogical origins is in Ezra 2 and 8, and it's in Nehemiah 7 as well, where these things are recorded. And it's worth noting that there's good reason to believe that Ezra might well be the chronicler. Now, the chronicler seems to be our last prophetic historian. The genealogies he listed are not complete, but they are covering the period from the creation to the return from the exile. Now, maybe, at least in part, the chronicler is beginning with these genealogies the way like Homer did, right? The catalog of ships in order for the Israelites of a given tribe or family to hear the names of their ancestors to be invested in the story. But really, the bigger concern and why it's in the chronicles is the disruption. Because the Jewish people had only recently turned from exile that disrupted everything about life under the covenant between God and Israel. That genealogy is preserved there to preserve the record for the Jewish people so they don't lose that connection with the past, the mighty works which Yahweh accomplished for their ancestors, the Levitical descent, uh, the Aaronic descent. All these things are critically important even for the continued functioning of God's people. And the fact that, of course, those records will get disrupted again in the year 70 of our era and not to be brought forth again is a quite telling situation uh, and an indication of God's hot displeasure regarding all that has taken place. There are two places in the New Testament that we find genealogies, and that's in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. And they are provided as a testimony of Jesus as a son of David, a son of Judah, a son of Abraham, and the son of God. And, of course, what's the story in that genealogy? But all the disruption the people of God had experienced for generations. But Jesus was grounded throughout as an Israelite of the Second Temple period. He knew what his people had endured, and he knew how he represented the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. So I hope that we've seen how much of the energy that is invested in the idea of genealogy and ancestry really comes from this desire to understand yourself and your place, And because there has been this disruption that has taken place in one's background, in one's ancestry. Now, in Christ, we are expected to experience a lot of disruption, and we're invited to find our roots in the people of God. Now, maybe you are the product of significant heritage among the people of God, that you've had many faithful generations that you can refer to, right? That you may be a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation uh, person in the church or something of the sort. And you've got that kind of grounding and example. Well, very well, very good. That's certainly not a requirement 
for joint participation in the faith in Christ, and many others will have no such heritage among the people of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul, and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians, so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. So Peter has been writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the first verse of the first chapter, and his framework is less about Israel according to the flesh, and more about encouraging Christians to understand themselves in their predicament in terms of Israel and Babylonian exile. That as Israel were exiles and sojourners while they were in Babylon, so now you are exiles and sojourners in Christ. That's what he wants the Christians of Asia Minor to imagine themselves as. Now, there are some who have speculated that some of those Christians, in fact, maybe most of those Christians, are in fact transplants from elsewhere. We do have some testimony that the early emperors were trying to kind of settle people in some of these parts of Asia Minor from other places. But at least some of them are likely born and raised in that same environment. And so Peter would have these Christians understand themselves as experiencing this really significant disruption. A very challenging disruption that would engender a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? Because the very nature of repentance would demand for those Christians to no longer think, feel, and act according to the social cultural norms of first century Asia Minor, but to think, feel, and act according to what God has made known in Jesus. And I mean, this is quite the tension, right? He's not telling them, hey, you need to become Second Temple Jewish people. That's not what Peter's saying. They would have still dressed and spoken and worked as they had before. They would not cease being Pontian or Celtic, Galatian, Bithynian, Cappadocian, or Asian uh, people, but they were no longer to primarily identify themselves in terms of those identities. You know, we can talk about being exiles and sojourners, and I'm not saying anybody wants to be an exile and sojourner in this world, but when you're an exile and sojourner in this world, you feel that disruption. You know you're in a different place. It's much more disorienting when, for instance, you're still an American, living in America, but now you're living according to a different code of conduct. Now you have a different citizenship that you're emphasizing. And this is what Peter's kind of addressed before. He wrote what he did in verses 11 and 12, because in verse 9 he said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter has done here is he's taken a pastiche of quotations in the Old Testament in which God is making reference to his people, that Israel was to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And he's now saying, you are this. And the you who are this are a people who were shown no mercy and now have received mercy, who were once not a people, but are now God's people. And while, sure, Hosea's quotation here that he's going at is is originally to the Israelites, um, it would be challenging, almost impossible, to imagine that Peter would really speak of Israel according to the flesh in any way, shape, or form as not God's people, or had not having received mercy earlier. This is why we believe that in 1 Peter 1, when he says elect exiles of the dispersion, his emphasis is not on saying, hey, you're Jewish, as much as saying you need to understand yourselves in the same way as Israel understood itself in Babylonian exile, and is in fact appropriating the language of Israel's people of God for these Christians. Now, as we said before, America is an anti-ethnicity or an anti-nation. It's a place to come in which to share all kinds of different cultural customs, to always have reasons to be reminded where ancestors come from, but without its own real culture. 
It's a cult is sharing an identity defined in terms of certain political creeds and liberty, which ultimately is really not a culture or an identity at all. And that's why Americans are so profoundly interested in genealogies and ancestors, so they can hold on to something, right? To have some kind of ethnicity they can find meaning in and standing in. We're made to be this way. So whereas there is disruption when you enter the kingdom of God in Christ, it's a call to no longer primarily ground yourself in your ethnicity or social culture, heritage, or standing. The kingdom of God is absolutely not an anti-ethnicity or an anti-nation. Because, as Peter says, to become a Christian is to be welcomed as part of the people of God. And this is an emphasis seen throughout the scriptures. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, that if we share in the faith of Abraham, we are children of Abraham and therefore inheritors of the promises God made to Abraham. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, very few of the Corinthian Christians would have had any kind of genetic relationship with the Israelites. And yet, Paul says, our fathers are the ones who went through uh, Egypt and came into the wilderness and all of that stuff. And Hebrews 11 and 12, right? The Hebrews author invites believers in Christ to consider those who came before them as fellow participants in the faith. And their legendary heroes of faith would not be perfect without these latter believers. And so all of us as Christians are invited and called to find our roots in the story of God and his people. Now, we'll be very clear about something. We are not seeing our ethnicity or our nationality erased in Christ. But as we can see in Revelation 22 and verse 2, where the beautiful picture is given that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations, that we have our ethnicity or our nationality redeemed in Christ. And there's some prophets who understand who we are in terms of our ancestors and our genealogy and to identify in many respects with our ancestors if we so desire. It, it is interesting to learn about uh, the fact that you came from people, and sometimes it is an, an awesome thing, uh, a very uh, humbling thing to learn about all the various situations and circumstances that worked out and how people met and came together so that you could be here. It, it's very humbling to realize how a couple historical accidents and all of a sudden you would not exist. Or also, yes, absolutely, events in the past become much more alive when you realize that your great-great-great-great-grandfather was part of it, or one of your relatives died in it, or however it might have worked out that way. There can be redemption for these things. And just as we remain citizens of our earthly nations and subject to their laws, but our higher and primary loyalties to the kingdom of God in Christ, right, Romans 13, Philippians 3, uh, and 1 Peter, we might be Americans with genetic descent with various ethnicities, but our higher and primary family identification should be of the people of God. And in the story of God's people, we should find motivated learning and appreciation. That the experiences of the patriarchs and Israelites are the story of our spiritual fathers. That we should not say, oh, this is just some random things that happened to people a long time ago. Those are our ancestors in the faith. The witness of the gospel in the New Testament comes from our brothers, Paulus, James, John, Jude, Luke, Mark, Matthew, Paul, and Peter. They are not some isolated other that we share in and with them. We speak of what our forefathers in the faith experienced both in terms of what's witnessed in Scripture, right? What, what we can see from uh, Genesis and the earliest times until the days uh, soon after the uh, return from exile, uh, the times in the New Testament, but also um, the times since the witness of Scripture. Uh, there are testimonies of what happened between the Testaments, right? And, of course, plenty of stories of what God's people have endured since uh, the Holy Spirit uh Cease inspiring the apostles, right? They can guide us in our lives and faith, and they help explain to us who we are and what we are about in Christ. And so we're all 
called upon to experience some level of disruption if we're going to follow God and Christ according to the Spirit, right? But we can find anchorage and heritage by rooting ourselves in the story of what God has accomplished in the creation, in his promises to the fathers, in his engagement with Israel, and ultimately in the fulfillment of all that he has promised in Jesus and his people. And just as it is written, therefore, in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and firm in your faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments about our exploration of finding our roots in genealogy, but more importantly, in Christ and his people, we'd love to hear about it. Let us know. Continue our conversation in the comments. Please subscribe to us. And if you found this beneficial, please share it with others. I'm Ethan with the Venice Church of Christ. We are a non-denominational church of Christians in Los Angeles. Love to be of encouragement service to you. Can we pray with you, for you? Can we study the Bible with you? Would you like to take Bible correspondence course? Would you like to meet with us? How can we be of service? Please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on uh, social media, either at Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you, and may the Lord bless and keep until we're able to meet again.